Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Bridge Kids, and thank you all the volunteers that served this past week. Really grateful for all that you have done. Why in the world do I have to follow Bridge Kids? I'll probably never get your attention. So I was thinking about this uh, weekend, the 4th of July, and I'm grateful uh, to have a holiday. And, you know, most of us got paid holidays. I know some of you didn't. Some of you deserve to, but you didn't. Uh, We live in a country that allows us to celebrate holidays and time to be with our families. Holidays are established to remember important events uh, that have happened in the past. For example, at Christmas, we remember the birth of Jesus. Here, we live in a country that allows us to take time off for Christmas. Uh, We have the Easter holiday and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have a country that they made a lot of different views about that. But we live in a country that um, a lot of people get paid for a good Friday or get time off. And and, uh, we have time to be with our families. Uh, On Memorial Day, we remember those who have given their lives in service to this country and uh, allowed us to be free. On July 4th, we celebrate Independence Day, the day the American colonies um, declared independence from England, which led to the establishment of the United States so that we would become free to govern ourselves as a nation. I'm very grateful to live in the United States. I'm grateful to have the freedoms that I have. I don't necessarily deserve all the freedom that I have. I could have been born any place in any time in history, but I have been born, I was born uh, in the 20th century. And uh, to live in this place, in this time, and Acts 17 demonstrates that, by the way. In Exodus chapter 11 and 12, God established an event that would lead to a holiday called the Passover. It established the nation Israel, and it is crucial to the backdrop of our Christian faith. And sometimes uh, we've not always understood this, but I really want you to see what's behind a really important concept uh, that we have in our Christian faith. By Exodus chapter 11, the nation of Egypt lies in ruins. God's people, Israel, have been held in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. The Pharaoh has been a crucial, uh, excuse me, a cruel taskmaster. God raised up Moses as a leader and promised to deliver his people. There have been nine miraculous judgments or plagues against Egypt and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. We now come to the very last plague. So, you know, maybe this is your first time and, you know, Exodus chapter 11? What's that all about? Well, some of you, how many have seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Because that'll date some of you. Um, uh, Charlton Heston and Ewell Brenner. I have a Ewell Brenner haircut. Some of you don't even know what a Yule Brenner haircut is. It's made famous by the movie, The Ten Commandments. And um, 
Some of you will know the Prince of Egypt, uh, Moses, the Prince of Egypt. Some of you have learned a little bit about the story of the Exodus from that movie. Well, we are to the last plague in that move, uh, movie, and more importantly, it's from God's Word, Exodus chapter 11. We see in verses 1 through 10, the Passover plan. This is about the Passover. It's the final plague, verse 1. Now the Lord had said, this happened in the past, already told Moses before this event. And one of the things we need to be reminded of, we go back to Exodus chapter 10. We left off with Moses before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to see you again. And and Moses says, that's right. You're not going to see me again. But this is a continuation. Moses has not left the presence of Pharaoh yet. So please understand that. And now the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. We don't know how many plagues we didn't know. Moses didn't know how many plagues would come on Egypt until right, right then when God told him one more. And so Moses has been going before Pharaoh and been telling him, announcing the, what's to come. There's going to be judgment to come. And he's just doing his job. And now he knows there's one more. This is it. This is the last one. God will accomplish his purpose through this. And verse 1 says, after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. We come to verse 2, which is kind of a surprise. And we call it the spoils. Verse 2, God said, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. What? You go back, Moses, and you tell the the Israelites that when you leave, now they can't, they've been there for over 400 years. They can't imagine leaving. How can we ever leave? He's never going to let us go. And now, Moses, you tell God's people that when you leave, you ask the Egyptians for silver and gold. That's what I want you to do. You have to do that by faith, wouldn't you? I mean, is this really going to happen? One of the things we're going to see is when God's people leave Egypt, they're going to leave loaded with silver and gold, which might be back pay for years of slavery without pay. God is the God of justice. What he's bringing back is something that's happened for over 400 years, and he's bringing justice to the situation of his people, Israel. There's an aside in verse 3. It's sort of like, okay, we've got to explain this, verse 3. In parentheses, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So scripture tells us here a little more why the Egyptians would ever do such a thing as give silver and gold uh, to the Israelites. And the reason is what God has been doing week after week, month after month, and probably all of these plagues, this time of judgment on Egypt takes place in a, within a year. And over time, the people of Egypt have been paying attention Hey, there might be something to this God. There might be something to these miracles. 
If you remember, Moses lived in Egypt for 40 years, and he was a very important person. He, he lived in Pharaoh's household, and he was highly regarded there. And yes, he, he left for 40 years, and uh, he's been gone, and he, he, was, he was run out of Egypt. Now he's back, and now he's a representative of the true and living God of Israel. And his reputation is growing. People are starting to pay attention to Moses. When Moses speaks and he says God is going to do something, it happens. And so there's this reputation that's been developing. And they're they're beginning to see the power of God displayed. And so they pay attention when Moses speaks. The plan of the Passover is in verses 4 through 8. Verse 4 tells us the time will be midnight. This is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go throughout Egypt. It's going to be a God thing. God is going to go throughout Egypt and he's going to cause this judgment to happen. And God wants him to know that there's a detail here you need to know. It's going to happen about midnight. So it's not going to be, I want you to understand, it's not going to be happenstance. It's not going to be, uh, you know, 4 a.m. It's not going to be 8 p.m. It's going to be about midnight. I want you to know that. Secondly, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. That sounds harsh. It is harsh. There's also a sense of justice in this judgment. Egypt has put to death the firstborn male of many Jewish boys. And there's been a hatred in Egypt for the Jewish people. Verse 5, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn, from the son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn cattle as well. So this is going to be against the gods of Egypt, against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and it's going to strike the firstborn of all Egyptians, firstborn male, from rich to poor. From the famous to the unknown. And it's going to strike uh, all the cattle as well. This will be God's judgment on Egypt. Verse 6. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than has ever been before and ever will be again. God's people cried out to their God for over 400 years. In pain and in tears for deliverance. And now on one night and one event, there's going to be great wailing in Egypt. Verse 7, the Israelites will be kept safe. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so here's a little detail in this story. It's a detail, just you know, that God is the one who is doing this. God is the one bringing justice to this situation. Little detail. There are probably thousands of dogs. We know at this time there are 600,000 men over the age of 20 in the land of Egypt with Israel on this occasion. That means there are quite a few households. Imagine that there, I don't care if you want to say hundreds or thousands of dogs probably kept by Israelites And God said, you know what, on this night, not one of them is going to bark. There are all kinds of reasons why a dog might bark at night, especially when something unusual is happening. 
And in Israel, not one dog will bark. That's how you're going to know that this is from God. And then verse 8, Pharaoh's officials will demand release of God's people. And uh, Moses tells Pharaoh, all these officials of yours, Pharaoh, will come to me, Moses, bowing down before me. That'll be an unusual sight, saying, go, you and all the people who follow you after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. This is when Moses departs from Pharaoh. The tide will turn so drastically against the Pharaoh that Pharaoh's officials are going to beg Moses to go. Pharaoh's officials will want Pharaoh to let Moses go. Verses 9 and 10, Pharaoh's response, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. And this was like uh, before the the whole story. Uh, This is a summary statement of all of the plagues and the miracles and the judgments that God had brought against Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse. He did every time. So that my wonders, those miracles, may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders. All nine of them at this point, And the tenth one is coming before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So, let me remind you of what we've seen so far. Remember... Moses went before Pharaoh, and Aaron had a staff, and Aaron threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake, maybe a cobra. And the magicians, they had staffs, and they threw theirs on the ground, and they turned into snakes. Wow, that's impressive. And then the snake from Aaron's staff proceeded to eat all of the other snakes. That was the first major miracle before Pharaoh. Then there was the plague of the blood, the water in the Nile changing to blood. Then there was the plague of the frogs, chapter 8, and the plague of the gnats, chapter 8, the plague of the flies, chapter 8, the plague of, against the livestock, chapter 9, the plague of the boils, chapter 9, the plague um, of the hail, chapter 9, the plague of the locusts, chapter 10, and the plague of darkness, chapter 10. All of these, Moses and Aaron, Performed before Pharaoh. Verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. We're going to slide right through these. Chapter 12, the Passover instructions. First, the new beginning, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Now we read that and it's a little detail, but this is huge. God is changing the calendar for what he's about to do. God is going to establish a nation. We forget this. Joseph was taken into Egypt, Genesis chapter uh, 37 through 50, the story of Joseph. And then God raised up Joseph to save his family, and, and 50 people went into Egypt to live and enjoy the land because there was a famine back in Canaan. 50 people. Over 400 years of captivity in Egypt, God's people are now 
Two and a half million, three million, three and a half million. We don't know for sure. We know there's 600,000 men over 20. Some of those may have been married and had some kids, plural. It's a large group of people. It has become, this is a big family by now. Joseph's family, Jacob's family. This is, a, this is Israel, okay? But they're, they're not a nation. They're slaves. God is going to make them a nation. God is going to take them out of Israel. God is going to establish them as a nation. He's going to give them a land. He's going to take them out into a desert. And he's going to give them a constitution, and we call it the law. This is huge. This is marked with a new beginning, a new day. So this is probably March and April on our calendar. And this is the month of Aviv for the Hebrews. And now this will become the first month of their year. Instructions, verses 3 through 11. The time will be the 10th day of the month of Aviv. God said, tell the whole community of Israel. This is the first time this concept is used. The whole community, the congregation. This is not just a group of families now. The whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month. Secondly, each person, each man shall take a lamb for his household. A couple of key concepts here. So we're going to take a lamb. It can be a sheep or goat. We're going to take a lamb and it's going to be the man, the father of the household. This is important for us. There's a leadership in the home comes from the father. That was God's plan. And this is family oriented. This is going to be in the home with the family. And there's going, to, there's going to be some instruction from the parents to the children about the meaning and significance of this. Um, verse 4, if the household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share with one another their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there they are. These are practical instructions and how it relates to the family size. Well, what if the family's not big enough? Well, this is what you do. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each, what each person will eat. So you're supposed to make a guess. Well, Uncle Joe really eats a lot. But Aunt Mary doesn't eat much. And they're supposed to make some kind of determination on how much lamb that you needed. Later, they're going to say, that, uh, the Jewish people are going to make a determination and say, a lamb will feed 10 people. The idea was to feed a household. Thirdly, the lamb must be a year-old male without defect, either sheep or goat. So one year, the size of a, 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 a lamb that's a year old is going to be big enough to feed a family. And it's to be without defect, not sick, uh, not lame, not deformed in any way, and um, because we're going to bring our best to God for God's work. Um, fourthly, take care of them from the 10th to the 14th of the month and then slaughter them at twilight. Four days to take care of the lamb. God wanted them engaged in this process in the life of the lamb. Some of it to determine the health of the lamb, perhaps. But some of them just that relationship with caring for the lamb, knowing what the purpose will be. And they were to slaughter that lamb at twilight on the 14th day. 
Fifthly, smear some of the blood on the sides of the tops of the door frames of your houses, which is in verse 7. This probably seemed pretty strange if you were an Israelite. We're going to kill a lamb. We're going to be eating a meal together. We're going to do what with the blood? We're going to paint it on the door frames, the sides of our doors, and on the top of the door? That is weird. By the way, if God told you to do that, would you do that? Because God is asking them to do something by faith. God is asking them to trust him. He's got a plan. He's going to bring deliverance. Can you trust him? The door was the entry to the home. And the blood from the lamb was, was a covering. Why is this important? You'll, you'll have to see in a minute. Prepare a meal, number six. Prepare a meal and eat the meat with your family, verses 8 through 11. The same night... Uh, They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is going to be an important meal for the family. Uh, God is setting down something that the families will do over and over and over to remember this occasion year after year after year to remember what God has done. This important concept in the Bible, it's remembering It's thinking back. So here's this family meal. Uh, The food is to be eaten together. There's going to be no waste. Nobody's going to dilly-dally around at supper and pick over their food. It's going to include eating the lamb. It's going to include bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitterness of their suffering in Egypt. And it's going to include eating bread without yeast because they don't have time now to wait for bread to rise. There's going to be more meaning that for that later. But this is right on the spot. Verse 9, do not eat the raw meat, meat raw or boiled in water. And by the way, in pagan celebrations, they ate raw meat. That's not going to happen among God's people. We ought to be grateful too. Um, and, and the Jewish people ought to be grateful too that they got to cook their meat before they ate it. But roasted over the fire with the head, the legs, and the internal organs. And I've never found a good explanation why they included the internal organs. If God said it, I would do it. Um, Verse 10, do not leave any of it until morning. If some left till morning, you must burn it. So the lamb is not to be left to rot or to decay. And it, it... may only be used for one purpose. It's not to be used for any other purpose. It's to be used uh, to honor God on this occasion. If there's any left, it's got to be destroyed. It's got to be burned. Verse 11, this is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Everybody is to be dressed and ready to go. And they practiced this for years, dressed and ready to go. Um, And eat it in haste, and it is the Lord's Passover. That's a key concept. It is the Lord's Passover. He designed it, He instructed it, and He is the one who will pass over. And this is how they are to celebrate it. 
God's Passover, verses 12 and 13. God will pass over Egypt and strike down every firstborn male, both men and animals. And this is the Passover. This is what the Passover is really about. God will pass over Egypt. He's going to do it next week. But this is what will happen. God will pass over Egypt. He will strike dead every firstborn male. Verse 12, on the same night, God said, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The plagues were against the gods of Egypt, those gods that were worshipped in Egypt. Let me remind you of some of those. When the Nile was turned to blood, it was against Hopi, the bull god, or the god of the Nile, and Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and Knum, the ram god, guardian of the Nile. That was the first plague. Then it was the plague of frogs, and that was against the goddess Hecate, goddess of birth. She was a female with a frog head. Remember that? And there was a plague of gnats. That was the god of Set, the god of the desert. Then there was a plague of flies, and that was against Re, the sun god, and uh, Utakit, the that's symbolized by the fly. How would you like to have a fly god? And then there was a plague of death on the livestock, and that was against Hathor, the goddess with the cow head, and Hapi, the bull god. And then there was a plague of the boils, and that was against Sekhmet, goddess of power over disease, and Sunu, the god of pestilence. And um, and Isis, who was also the goddess of healing. Then there was the plague of hail, and that was against Newt, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops, and Seth, the god of... Um, it's so small I can't even see it. Then there was the, the plague of locusts against Newt and Osiris. Uh, Osiris. Then there was a plague of darkness against Ray, the sun god, and um, Newt, and against um, Hakim. There was the death of the firstborn. That's the one, the plague right now, the final. And this is against men, the god of reproduction, Hecate, the goddess of childbirth, Isis, the goddess uh, who protected children, and Pharaoh's firstborn son, who was a god. In Egypt. So, uh, verse 13 this blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood on the door frames of the house was a covering, a protection. God would pass over Egypt and whatever. There was blood on a doorframe. He passed right over and there was no judgment. There was no death in that home. Now think about this. Those Israelites, they had to respond to God's instructions. What will you do? Will you do this? Will you take the Passover lamb? Will you eat the meal together? Will you paint the blood on your doorframes? That's what it means to live by faith. When God tells you to do something... You follow through. Now, God has never asked me to paint blood on my door frames. 
This was one occasion when he asked them to do that. But they had to follow through to receive God's protection, God's covering, and they would be saved from death. So what about some lessons? I just have two. The first lesson is this. Jesus Christ is our Passover. He's our Passover lamb. This is the fa- foundational concept in all of the Bible. It's foundational to the concept of Christianity. And I confess it's a little bit foreign to an American, this whole concept. But it's still a crucial concept in the scriptures. Um, God had a plan from the foundation of the world for Jesus. It included that Jesus would be our Passover lamb. John the Baptist was the first to tell us in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 29. When Jesus approached John to be baptized, this is what John said. And I don't think John had a lot of information. I think John got information from God along the way. And I frankly believe that John just got this information as Jesus was walking toward him. And John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is amazing insight from John. John recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one, the holy one. And he identifies Jesus with Isaiah 53, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a lamb like sheep to the slaughter. The Apostle Peter also recognized this in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 21. Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Nobody paid a lot of cash for you to be redeemed. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter is referring to this concept of the Passover lamb. That there had to be a covering for us. That God would pass over judgment on us. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen The Lamb of God was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times in Peter's day for your sake. Next slide. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and hope are in God. And Peter recognizes a key concept for us to have this hope. It requires us to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. Another key concept comes from the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 9.22. The writer of Hebrews recognizes, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. This concept, when we talk about blood, is so hard for us Western thinkers to understand this, the idea of a blood sacrifice. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That was true from the beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve had to be covered with animal skins by the shedding of blood for their sin. Next, uh, Hebrews 9.27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So the writer is reminding us we're all going to die 
physically. And after we all die physically, we all face a judgment before the true and living God. So for this reason, verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once, once for all, to take away the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins. In fact, we can say the sins of the entire world for all people. Um, Second lesson, Jesus' sacrificial offer of forgiveness is to all people today. Romans 5.8 tells us this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates it's because God loves you and me. How does that feel to say that God loves you or that God loves me? Do you know that God loves you? Because he loved you, he did something for you and for me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it not because we were good. We didn't deserve it. We didn't have to do something for it. He died for us. He was our substitute. He took our place. Um, Another key concept is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Again, it's because of his love. God cared about us. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his son, his one and only. The Bible even calls him firstborn, but he was never created. God's firstborn for us. Because of his love, he, he would become a sacrifice. He would become a sac- the Passover lamb for us. So that Jesus' blood shed for us would cover our sin. That whoever believes in him, and this is God's offer to every person, whoever, put your name there, any person, whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not face eternal death and final and uh, eternal judgment, but will experience forgiveness and given eternal life. Luke picks this up in Acts 16, 30 and 31. This is when the Philippian jailer um, approaches Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So this is a question. What must I do? And here's about the simplest answer you can find in the Bible. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, because the Philippian jailer was with his family, with his uh, household and if Philippian jailer would believe, he would be saved. If his household would believe, they would be saved. Response is to believe in Jesus. When you think about that, Jesus Christ is alive right now. He's not a dead Savior. He sits on the right hand of God right now. And this offer is still good for this day. He is a resurrected Savior. I would like to give us an opportunity. We're going to have a time of communion in just a minute. But just before we do, I would just like to give us an opportunity for anyone here who would like 
to express their faith in Jesus Christ, to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, I'd like to remind us that faith doesn't happen by osmosis. We don't get faith because we live with somebody who has faith. Faith is a personal choice. It's something you must choose. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Let me remind you, you must understand that you're a sinner. That means uh, all have sinned. That means you're not perfect. It means uh, you've dishonored God in some way in your life. You need to understand that the wages of sin is death. There are consequences, spiritual death, final judgment, and that Jesus died for you. He paid the price. He took the death. He experienced the death in your place. And that will benefit you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you choose to trust him. So here's what I'd like to close this time. I'd like to say a prayer like this. I'm going to say it through twice. The first time, just think about it because I don't want anybody to, I'm not asking anybody to say a prayer that they don't understand that they don't mean. But here's the prayer. And then the second time, I want to go through it. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. Second time, but not the first time. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me. He took my place. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sins, and I invite him into my life, and I ask him to help me to be the person that he wants me to be. So if that prayer made sense to you, I'd like us to just bow our heads and our hearts together. And I would invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would invite you to do so by praying with me silently from your own heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me, that he took my place. I trust Jesus right now to pay the penalty for my sins. And Lord, I just ask for your help right now to help me to be the person that you want me to be. So if you prayed that prayer, if everybody would just keep their heads bowed for a little bit longer, if you prayed that prayer, would you just mind slipping up your hand so I could see? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. Any, anybody else? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, I thank you for those who indicated they prayed with me this morning to place their faith in Christ. And I pray that right now they would experience your presence, that they would experience your forgiveness, that they would know that from their heart. And that they would seek uh, to follow you and to learn to follow you. And Father, I want to pray for all of us right now as... um, We come to a time of communion and remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And we are mindful that um, Jesus' very last supper was the Passover meal. And on the day he was executed, the Passover lamb was put to death. Our Father, as we think back, we are to remember the death of Jesus. And you've given us those instructions in your word. And you've told us that we should examine our lives before we do so. That our hearts should be clean and our sins confessed before we share in this time together. 
And we are to take the bread and to remember that the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ. We are to take the cup and remember that the cup is a symbol of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And so right now, Father, we want to give you thanks. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died for each one of us. We thank you for the bread that symbolizes his body that he gave for us. We thank you for the cup that symbolizes his blood that he shed in our behalf. Father, may we be humbled by what you've done for us. Thank you that you forgive us. You've given us a promise if we confess our sins. You are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.